1, verses 14 and 15. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Good evening, church. We had to ask once tonight. That's good. That's good. That must mean that we're awake and ready to go. We are winding down the series that we've been doing on Sunday nights with, uh, called Foundations, where we are trying to build a system of beliefs where that are built upon the foundation of God who happens to be ultimate reality or the final source of reality. And so what we're really building this on is the concept of the idea that Jesus told the story in Luke chapter 6 when he told a story about two men who uh, built homes in which they were going to live. And one person dug deep, found the rock, and laid the foundation of their home on the rock and then continued to build that house and dwelt in that house. And then there was another man that just built his house right immediately on the first ground that he saw. He took no consideration for it, just uh, threw it down, no foundation whatsoever, and he just dwelt in that house. And both people experienced catastrophe in life. Said the floods rose and the wind beat against the home. And in that story, there's one person that their house fell down, and the other person, the house stood firm. We know that old children's song is kind of fun to sing with regards to that, that uh, parable that Jesus told. But the point is this, that the home represents core foundational beliefs that we have about the world, better known as a worldview. And we can have a worldview that will either stand against catastrophes of life or be crushed when difficulties of life come. The certainty that we see in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 6 that we all most certainly know about is that we are going to face difficulty in life. And the question is, when that difficulty comes, will your core foundational beliefs about life stand? When you face difficulty, when you face tragedy, when you face heartache, when you have those times in your life when you ask the serious questions like, God, where are you? Will you have the foundational core beliefs that will be able to stand when you face catastrophe? Like I said, what we're building is what's called a worldview. The way that you view the world. And the main four questions that have to be answered when you build a worldview is, one, where did we come from? Where in the world did I come from? Number two, why am I here? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? What's my purpose in life? Number three, you have to answer the question of what is wrong with the world. There's nobody that denies the presence of wrong, of evil, of catastrophe and difficulty. But based upon your worldview, your beliefs, you answer the question of what's wrong with the world differently. So how do you answer the question of what is wrong with the world? And finally, the last thing that is involved in a worldview is how do you fix what's wrong? So when you see a story on the news of some terrible tragedy that just should not have happened, some crime that's happened, what do you think when you see that? What has gone wrong with that person? And then what do you think when you see that person of how do we fix that? That tells you what your worldview is. And so our series of sermons on Sunday night has been about this. And what we're trying to do is present a Christian worldview. A worldview that comes from the view of God 
and most certainly Jesus Christ. And all of this information that we've done for the first seven parts of this series, it's had a lot to do with you. We, we've talked about you to a certain degree. We've talked about me to a certain degree, but it really hasn't asked you to do anything yet. If you think about it, for seven sermons so far, I haven't really asked you to do anything. I've asked you to consider some things and evaluate your beliefs, but you haven't really been asked to respond yet. Most of what we've talked about, I've been clarifying what God has done and who God is and what He's been participating in. But now what we're going to do tonight is do things a little bit differently. Jesus is going to give us a call to action. So tonight you're going to be called to action. You're going to be called to actually do something. Most of us are familiar with the phrase call to action. Even if you don't know the phrase call to action, it's a marketing term. Um, and what it is is basically when you're watching the television, you see, you know, the sham wow infomercial and like every 26 seconds is like popping up on your screen, like buy now, call now, call this number. And they say the 1-800 number like 36 times in a row and you memorize it. You know what I'm talking about? That's a call to action. Or if you go to a website and you see a banner across the top or a button on the side, that says subscribe now or download now. Those are calls to action. What they're trying to do is based upon the information they've presented you. Like this rag can soak up like 66 gallons of water or something like that. Based upon that information, I'm going to call you to action. Buy this. And what's funny about that, and the reason we kind of chuckle when we hear this uh, talked about, is most call-to-action marketing schemes make us leery. We're very suspicious of them, right? Probably because of the joke, the the exaggeration that I just mentioned about the claims that are made for the things that we see on television or the websites that are presenting us something that we can download or buy. There's usually a healthy level of suspicion when it comes to the call to action. Like, why are they wanting me to buy this and why are they so urgent about it? And I'm not so sure the thing that they're selling me can really do what they're selling me that it can do. Like, you ever seen the guy that like, cuts a hole in a boat and then he like sprays this like rubber stuff on it and then he gets back into the boat and he's like paddling around and he's like buy now and then we'll give you 16 more bottles if you buy one bottle and it's strange right why do you feel leery about that what makes you uncomfortable about that you're just not sure right like, like are you sure you can really spray this stuff on there and it fixes everything well unfortunately Call to action with regards to religion has come under the same level of scrutiny, the same level of skepticism, the same level of, I'm not so sure you can deliver on the thing that you're calling me to act upon. I'm not sure. Well, tonight, Jesus is going to call us to action, as you see in Mark chapter 1. And what we're going to do, um, because a, a call to action marketing scheme first relies on the content, and then the call. And so we're going to do the very same thing. Um, We're going to first remind ourselves of the content of Jesus' message. And this won't take very long because what we've been doing for seven weeks is the large story of Jesus' gospel message. Who God is, what God created, what has gone wrong, and what God has been doing to fix that. That's what we've been talking about. The triune God of the universe made us. Creation. And we rebelled through the fall. 
and he has been working redemption ever since. And so we're going to remind ourselves of the content of Jesus' message. And then based upon that content, we're going to look at the call of Jesus to action. So Mark gets right into his gospel message in chapter 1. Um, he, he doesn't beat around the bush with the gospel story. He doesn't really give you the genealogy or the birth of Jesus. He gets right into it. In chapter 1, he already has John's ministry and John in prison. If you notice that John is already arrested and imprisoned in verse 14 of chapter 1. And after that, Jesus begins his public ministry. And what I mean by public ministry is about the three-year window of his life where he was actively teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, the gospel. And he was actively healing and he was actively caring for people and he was calling disciples and raising up people to follow after him. There was a three-year window of public ministry where Jesus was doing that. And here in verse 14 is the beginning of that. And so John is in prison. In verse 14 it says, Jesus came into Galilee heralding, proclaiming, the gospel of God. And so Jesus is proclaiming a simple message, the gospel, the very same message that you and I are called to understand and to know and to teach today. He's proclaiming the gospel of God's kingdom. It's a very interesting thing to think about it. When you mention the word gospel in um, American church, Western society, who are heavily, heavily influenced by the writings of Paul, the, the 12, maybe 13 epistles of Paul, but don't always spend a lot of time in the Gospels. When you say the word gospel, most of us think of the Apostle Paul, and we think of the message of basically individual, not able to save himself, trusting by faith in the work of Jesus Christ for individual salvation. And, and Paul deals a lot with that because he had to go to a Gentile uh, nation, Gentile people and convert them and, and keep them away from Judaism. But when you see the word gospel in the mouth of Jesus, you know what's most closely attached to it? The gospel of the kingdom. That was the good news of Jesus. Not that they were different, but they had to face different crowds. Jesus was dealing with his people, the, the Jews who were waiting for the return of a king to set up a kingdom. They were waiting for the return of the prominence of Israel. And so they were begging for this. And so when Jesus comes on this, onto the scene and is ready to pronounce that He is the King, the Messiah, the Chosen One, He's got a message of a kingdom, a, very, a new kingdom. And this kingdom has two points in it. If you notice um, in verse 15, He's preaching the gospel of God of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. In verse 15, it says this. He's saying two things. There's two pieces of content and one call to action. The first piece is this. The time is fulfilled. Now, like most things that Jesus says, one little phrase, about four words, the time is fulfilled. I got that right. Okay, it's four words has a monumental amount of information inside of it. The word time is just uh, what he was getting at was an era or a season. So he's not meaning specifically like an hour or just maybe like a day of time. He's talking about a season, an era in which something was happening. And now that time is about to be fulfilled or finished, brought to completion, brought to end. All of the things of that era have been met. And now that era is going to be over. So if you've been tracking along with us on our Sunday night's theme, you remember after we talked about creation, and then after we talked about the fall of the, re the rebellion of mankind, 
Then we got into the story of what the Bible calls redemption. And so to review our story, we noticed that there was a triune God of love who created us out of love, for love, to walk by faith. And you and I, as we see in the story in Genesis chapter 3, rebelled in self-exalting autonomy. We didn't want God to rule over us anymore, so we're going to rule ourselves. And what God calls that is sin. And God hates sin. Just like any parent would hate self-exalting ingratitude of their child that is dependent upon them. As any parent would look at that and say, this is not good for you. If you think you can do this on your own without me, but you are completely dependent on me, it's not good for you. And so God as a father hates sin. This exalting of self that I don't need God, that I've got the world figured out and I could do life without him. God hates that. But although he hates it, he looks upon those that commit sin and loves them. And God says, I won't leave them alone. I won't leave them without. I won't leave them in darkness. And so I'll send light into the darkness. I'll send truth into the lie. I'm going to send redemption in the form of Jesus Christ, my son. I'm going to save them. And so Jesus comes and he says, the time, the era in which mankind was lost, the era in which I've been working my redemption is coming to completion. What anticipation, what excitement. For God to finally say, at the right time, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, into the world to finish this thing. You see, he's bringing the time of delusion. He's bringing the time of the lie. He's bringing the time of darkness to completion. And he's bringing his plan of redemption to full completion. The time is at hand. This time has been fulfilled. God has been working redemption since Genesis chapter 3 when man rebelled. He's been working, and now Jesus Christ has come, and God is saying, listen, it's here. So what we've talked about, Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. And so in those four words, this is just my divine imagination for a moment, but I believe that as Jesus was spending time with people, he was going back like Stephen did in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and saying, hey, let me tell you the story, like I've tried to tell you much, much less quality than what Jesus would have done. Let me tell you the story of what's been going on for the last thousand, two thousand years. You remember Moses? You remember Abraham? God's been working a plan, and I'm the fulfillment of that plan. Jesus was preaching that message. The second thing that he said was that the kingdom of God is near you. It's close to you. It's right here. Um, That word kingdom is not always understood so clearly for us because we don't necessarily exist in in a monarchy here in our culture. We, We... like to call this a democracy we'll argue that in another time but we don't really know like like monarchy kingdom here and so let me try to give you a better understanding of the word kingdom so we can try to make some sense of this when jesus said the kingdom is near what he's saying is that a new administration is here so think about if you work for a particular company maybe a corporation and they have uh five or six or seven c-level um people that are above you and then they have um, vice presidents department managers and let's say that the all five top level ceos c-level people are replaced all of a sudden new people are completely brought in you would expect a lot of changes to come into your corporation right if that were to happen and what he's saying here is that a new administration is coming a kingdom is going to be here 
And this is not going to be a kingdom of coercion, which is going to use physical force just to draw people in. This is going to be a kingdom of appealing to people that are broken, to people that are lost, to people that have been drinking from the dry wells of this world. Jesus is going to offer a fountain of life, a kingdom that is going to bring real life. Paul said it this way in Romans, that we have a kingdom of righteousness, of peace, of justice. It's a good kingdom. It's a kingdom of spirituality. And so this kingdom is for those who will follow this call of action and they will no longer be ruled by this world, by their sin, or even by themselves. It's a kingdom. And so the way that most of us have been living is self-exalting, governing ourselves, ruling ourselves, deciding what we're going to do. And so Jesus says the kingdom is near, meaning there's a kingdom that's close to you that you can enter into that will not make you ruled by the world anymore and your sin won't rule over you. But guess what? You won't rule over you either. Jesus Christ will. This kingdom is now actively governed by the rightful King Jesus who paid the debt to have us. This was the missing part from our sermon last week on Christology or the story of, the, of Jesus Christ. Um, the atoning work that he did on Calvary bought us back from the power of sin. And so we'll talk more about that later. What Jesus is really trying to say when he says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is near, is that true salvation has come. Real salvation, not physical salvation from enemies but spiritual salvation from the enemy that keeps you from God. It's important that you and I understand salvation is the ultimate freedom from the practice, from the love, and from the guilt of sin. What Jesus Christ offers is a salvation that frees you from the habitual practice, but also the love, the wanting of sin. And yes, even the guilt of sin. And so here's the deal. If you're not after the freedom from being a sinner, the freedom from practicing sin, the freedom from, yes, if we can be honest, the love, the desire for sin, if you're not really wanting that, then you're looking in the wrong place if you're looking to Jesus. Because what He offers is the freedom from the love and the desire of sin. And so in light of this gospel, Jesus gives us the only logical response that He has come into the world as the Savior of mankind. And He's bringing a kingdom that you can come into where you will no longer govern yourself, but you won't be ruled by sin. And He offers you a call to action. So if I had a screen now, this is where like the buy now would be flashing at you and the 1-800 number would be coming at you. Buy now. Here's how He's going to tell you to buy now. Based upon this information, if you're interested in what He has for you, He's going to say this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so as we're making our way to the eighth step in this sermon series, the way that you respond to Jesus Christ is repent and believe. Repent and believe. So let's try to understand this. There's lots to learn. First, it may seem like there are two actions. When you read that, does it sound like there's two actions? Repent and believe, right? But these are so unified that I would suggest to you that they are actually one and the same in the sense that they cannot exist separate from each other. You really don't have true saving faith if you're not a person who repents. And if you are not repenting, then you really don't have faith. Does that make sense? 
So uh, let me put it this way to kind of give you an example. If I were to tell you, I want you to leave London and go to Los Angeles. It sounds like two actions, right? But really, you can't go to Los Angeles unless you leave London. And you can't, if you leave London and go to Los Angeles, you've done the thing that I've asked you to do. Even though there's two elements, it's one idea, okay? The second thing that's important, so this is a unified one idea, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is a unified breath of Christianity. The second thing is the tense in which Jesus uses these terms, these verbs. They are in the present and the active tense. Meaning that these are not punctular, one thing you do at one time, like I repented and I had faith, now I'm a Christian. Like that time, you know, 10, 15, 30, 60 years ago, I repented, so now I became a Christian. Jesus uses them in a present and an active tense, meaning that these become not just things you have done, but patterns of life that you do constantly, daily. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith becomes the cadence by which you march in the kingdom of God. Daily. Now here's why this is exciting to me. So if this made you a little bit uncomfortable, this idea that you are to be repenting and believing or having faith daily, this becomes the breath in which you breathe in Christianity. Here's why this is exciting, because repentance and faith are the inner workings the nuts and bolts of your transformation. So if you're here tonight and you say, I am a Christian, but you are not changing, the element that you're missing is repentance and faith tied together as one thing. If you call yourself a Christian, but there is in your life no presence of repentance and no presence of reliance on Jesus Christ at all. No looking to the heavens and say, I need Jesus in my life. There's no presence of that. I feel the duty to tell you that I would be concerned about the fact that you call yourself a Christian. Repentance and faith are the evidence, the fruit of someone who is a Christian and the fruit of a person that believes in Jesus Christ. The real fruit of faith is your repentance. That's the mark of being a Christian. I think the Bible and God will hold us to nothing less than that. So for the rest of our time, we have just a few minutes left. I want to be really practical with you about repentance and faith, okay? Um, these are one of those things where, like I kind of offer to you oftentimes my notes and, and my research notes, the, the notes on repentance and notes on, notes on faith will be, you know, volumes and volumes. Not for me, but you can find a lot of stuff. I'll tell you a couple things just so you can, if you want to go read. Um, there's a 1700s Puritan uh, preacher named Thomas Watson who wrote a 90-page document called The Doctrine of Repentance. I would encourage you to read that. Um, very, very detailed, very, very good writing. Uh, you can find it for free online, PDF, just type Thomas Watson, uh, Repentance, and you'll find that PDF online. That's a very good one for you to check out. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell you what repentance and faith is. I want to share with you quickly just what the counterfeits are, because there are counterfeits to faith and there are counterfeits to repentance. Now I want to give you a simple illustration of how this becomes not just a religious thing you do, but the, the way you live your life, okay? So let me give you, first of all, what repentance is. The definition of repentance really comes from a word that is put together that means after and think. 
So you take the word after and you take the word think and you put those together. And that's what repentance really means. It means the mind that you have after you've changed your mind. Are you with me? So it's the way that you think after you've maybe learned something. That's repentance. So it's, it's thinking about something. It's the renewed mind. It's the changed mind. It's the work that God does in us when He transform us, transforms us by the renewing of our mind. As Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Let me offer you um, some insight into the counterfeits of repentance. Because I think repentance has... Uh, you, you guys have been here on Sunday morning. Our elders have been teaching about discipline. And how long has it taken you over the course of six months to hear the word discipline and not think, uh-oh, Somebody's in trouble. Anybody want to be brave enough to say, yeah, it's taking me a little while? <laughs> it takes a while, right? You hear the word discipline, you're like, ooh, what'd they do? Somebody did something bad, right? And, and our elders have done a marvelous job at really displaying what, what discipline is. Well, I think repentance is a similar word. When I say the word repentance, I, what does it mean? Um, some of the counterfeits that exist out there, I think people just sometimes think it means like tears and sobbing and, and grief and, and heartache and things like that. And those are involved at times. But let me give you a few counterfeits that are full of emotion and empty of repentance. Okay? Number one, grief and sorrow without change is not repentance. When you feel overwhelmed, heavily grieved, and you feel sorrow but it does nothing to change you, that's not repentance. You see, what happens in repentance oftentimes in religion is, is it becomes incredibly horizontal and not vertical at all. So if I've done something to you and you are offended by that and you come and you talk to me and I'm like, oh no, I did this thing and now, now Tim Hahn knows about it and he's calling me out on it and he's mad at me now and, and, and I'm grieving over that and I have sorrow over that and I have an anxious stomach and I can't sleep at night and I just hoping Tim will forgive me because I don't want Tim to be mad at me and when finally Tim comes and says brother it's okay we're fine and he hugs me in the next two or three services and I know they're okay and I and I don't change you know what I was grieving and sorrowing over my image how I looked to Tim it had nothing to do with offending the triune God of love nothing it had everything to do with me being worried that Tim's going to look at me and say, I'm a scum. That's what it had to do with. That's not repentance. So gr your grief and your sorrow, I want to warn you, be very, very cautious and discerning about that. When you feel grief and when you feel sorrow, look carefully at yourself. Pray about this. Be serious about this. Ask God to open your eyes to the grief that you're having, if it's real or if it's counterfeit. Because a lot of our grief and sorrow has much more to do with the fact that we've lost honor, reputation, image, and very little to do with offending the God of the universe. Very little. So I'm speaking from experience. Uh, this is how I, I deal a lot with my repentance. I have to very check myself on my grief and sorrow. The other way that uh, repentance can be counterfeit is fear of consequences. Fear of consequences. Let me ask you this question. If hell were not an option, would repentance be on the table for you? If all of a sudden God was like, hey guys, listen, people with this hell stuff are going a little too far. I was just trying to like, you know, get people to change their ways. It was kind of the care, you know, stick, trying to drive some people to change. If God took hell off the table, would you stop wanting to change? And that will tell you that that's not real repentance. 
That is fear of consequence, and that will not transform your life. You'll white-knuckle that thing till the day you're laying on your deathbed, and you'll be bitter at God because He didn't make your life better because you did so much for Him. You'll look to the heavens and say, I tried my hardest, and this is all you gave me? And anytime something difficult comes, you'll look to the heavens and say, listen, I'm doing the best I can. You owe me more. You see, that kind of repentance out of fear of consequence is trying to put God in your debt. It has nothing to do with pursuing the heart of God. Nothing. Repentance is when you look at sin and say, I don't want sin. I hate sin. We need to be very careful with that. So grief and sorrow without change, fear of consequences, more like sorry you got caught than sorry that you have sin. And the third one is despair over self. Despair of a self is oftentimes seen as repentance, like loathing of self. Oh, woe is me. God can never save me. And boy, doesn't it sound humble. But let me tell you, that is just a mark of unbelief. That you are not believing accurately what God has said about the human life, and you're not believing accurately what God has said about the work of Jesus Christ. Despair of self needs repented of. It is not repentance. Okay? I've got to keep moving or we'll never get there. So, um, let's move on to faith. Faith, the definition of faith is to place your trust in something, to rely solely on something outside of yourself. That's what it means to have faith, to rely on something. So the counterfeit to faith is knowledge. Let me ask you a few questions. Like, for instance, who were Jesus' parents? Do you know? Joseph and Mary, right? On earth, Joseph and Mary. You can say God if you want to, you know, be Johnny religious. Um, why did Jesus die? For our sins. Good job. What day was Jesus raised? What day of the week? Third, what day of the week? Sunday. What are the steps to salvation that you've heard? What are they? Yeah, good job. You guys did all right on that quiz. But here's the deal. Answering those questions with accuracy is not faith. At all. At all. It takes knowledge to be able to think about having faith, but the ability to answer a plethora of Bible questions, even questions about life and morality, is not faith. What Jesus is talking about when He says the word belief here is to look to the work of Jesus in the future what He's talking about, is to look to Jesus and say, what He did for me at Calvary is the very thing that I depend on to be the source of my strength, to no longer love sin because of His love for me and no longer want sin because of what He's done for me and to be forgiven of my sin. So when I think about having my guilt removed and being infused with power to walk away from sin, I think about Jesus Christ and what He's done. That's faith. And what most people in modern evangelicalism do is some form of moralism that says, I can do better. Like they go to Barnes & Noble and buy a self-help book on how to improve their life. Faith, what Jesus is talking about here, is more than belief in facts. It's more than agreement with Christ. It's more than just believing those things are true. And it's even more than just trusting that Jesus has the authority to tell me what to do. It's more than that. Jesus didn't die to earn the right to tell us what to do. Now, He has the right because He's God. He died to absorb the punishment and empower the freedom. And until you trust that, everything else 
is a secondary sort of like Facebook stalker relationship. It's not real faith. Saving faith is the complete reliance upon the person and work of Jesus to deliver me from the practice, love, and guilt of sin. He's the power. So how do these work together? I know. All right. Let me give you this. Eric, do I touch this or? Hey, you guys know how much I love PowerPoint, right? I just like always do PowerPoint. I wanted to try to illustrate this for you because here's how I see it. Um, last couple years of my life, um, repentance has become you know, a pretty important theme in my, in my own walk because I just realized that I had very few of the like, big-ticket item sins in my life that, that you would look at me and be like, man, you should stop doing that. But I had a deep sense of self-reliance and self-exaltation and autonomy. I was not really trusting God. And how repentance really plays into that um, sort of worked itself out. So when most people think of the Christian life and how they would diagram it, uh, we usually think of line graphs, right? So it starts on the, it'd be your left and goes to the right. And we kind of like chart our way through life, right? Birth to death. Um, I came across a different analogy that I thought really works well for me. And I want to share that with you. So most of you remember like the old LP records. LP is the right phrase, right? The, the plastic or vinyl things. Do you know how many lines are on those? How many lines? Huh? How many get rich? Come on. Just one. There's just one line. It starts on the outside and you put the needle on and it goes around the same line until it gets what? To the center. And that analogy of the Christian life made a lot more sense to me. And I began to think about how repentance is a daily practice, belief, faith, and repentance. So I want to share this with you. Um, Step one for me, this is how it's worked, is awareness. You see, sight. uh, Thomas Watson says it calls it sight. And sight of your sin is one of the most great is one of the greatest blessings God can give you. Now it hurts and it's ugly and it doesn't feel good, but God opening your eyes to your blindness to what you're sinful in is one of the best graces He can do for you. It's ultimate mercy. Remember in Luke 15 when the prodigal came to himself, his eyes were opened. He knew, and so I would encourage you uh, as you step into this, to, be a, to pray this way, similar to this. Maybe something like, God, I want to ask you to shine light into the dark places of my heart. I don't know what they are, but I'm going to ask you for that help. That's a scary prayer, but I encourage you to do that. That opens awareness, okay? And it takes faith to do that. And then when awareness comes, you have the opportunity on each of these arrows to either exit through disbelief or enter through faith. And as you come to the next one, when your sin is really made aware to you, you have the opportunity to either self-justify and deny through unbelief or experience conviction. Maybe this will come through a spouse or one of your children or a church member. And maybe as you start praying for this, I want to warn you, like it'll come. God's going to open your eyes, and it may surprise you who it comes from. Um, and as you become aware of your sin, ways in which you don't trust God yet, And as that opens your eyes, the opportunity for you to get into self-defense mode is immediate. I want to warn you, Satan will be whispering to you, who do they think they are? They can't say that about you. You You're not that bad. This person is not as bad as you. And in that moment, you will exit off the off-ramp through unbelief and not experience conviction that I'm wrong. But one of the greatest liberations that you will ever experience is the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary is to be able to say, wow, I am really wrong. What I do is wrong. 
the way I trust myself and not God is wrong. And to look to God and say, I am wrong. And so as you, as awareness comes and that ugliness sort of hits you and you get, I call it the warm wash of shame. You know, you're like, oh my goodness, this is true about me. Whew, I don't like that. You move into conviction. You're like, this is real. And just, I want to encourage you, just stay in conviction until you move to repentance. Don't bail out, even when it hurts. Don't bail out of conviction. And as you move, as you stay in conviction, you pray to God and you ask Him for help, He'll help you move into what's called repentance, which is saying, I'm going to tell you, God, I'm going to agree with you through confession what I'm doing that's wrong. I'm going to understand in the conviction phase, God, make it clear to me what it is that I'm doing that's wrong, that's sinful still. And as you move into repentance, as you move into that, you can confess that to God and say, God, I'm doing this. I value this more than I value you. I care about these things more than I care about these people in my life. I have done this wrong. I'm wrong. And God, I want to change. Help me change. And as you work through repentance, it brings you to restoration. Mercies of God, the joy of Him new in the morning. That respite of peace. And um, as this process continues, I want to tell you that I believe that this cycle, this circle right here, is what every serious Christian will do for the rest of their life. It never stops. Awareness, conviction, repentance, restoration. It never stops. But I believe it's like that record, that LP, where we put the needle on, and I believe the heart of God is in the center. God is everywhere, but I believe the heart of God is in the middle. And as you start on the outside and you enter into this jungle of self-discovery and learning who God is and His saving work, and as you begin to go around this cycle, as you go two, three, four, five times around this, where's the needle now? Closer to the heart of God. I believe the point of this journey is to continue to get closer and closer and closer to the heart of God. What did God say about David? He was what? A man after God's own heart. I believe David had the, I don't call it faith anymore with our college and young adults anymore because the word faith is so wishy-washy in our religion here in America. I call it the guts, the strength, the courage. See, David had the courage to enter into this fray right here and say, God, I, you can make me aware of my sin because I want your heart more than I want more my pride. Does that make sense? So this is the act of repentance, and the way that faith works into this is faith empowers every arrow to keep moving forward. And every time I veer off the exit ramp, it's because I go into unbelief. Faith empowers us to move forward, and what you have to have faith in is this, that the work of Jesus Christ is every bit your justification, your sanctification, your salvation. And so every ounce of righteousness that you need to stand in front of God and stand in front of people comes from Jesus Christ and His love for you. And so when you know that you are so fully loved by God, it's when you know that and you trust that that you can walk into, I'm ready to change. I think people that don't know that they're loved by God will stay on the outside of this circle the rest of their lives. But when you know that you're so fully loved by God that His love is not ending, like Paul said, there's nothing that can separate you from His love. When you trust that, that dumps you into this ground where you can start going around this cycle and getting closer and closer to the heart of God. And if we could just summarize what we want for the Christians in this room, you know, church growth, all, listen, 
We want you people to be close to the heart of God. I don't care how many people are in this building. We want you close to the heart of God. I pray you'll start doing this. If we can help you, you can come. Let's stand and sing.